Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco, and I'm joined today by someone uh, who I'm just flattered joined me because they've had a really, really busy week and have been talking to a lot of important people. So that is Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. So Cynthia, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you have been spent the week uh, on MSNBC. You've been writing. Uh, yesterday, you testified before the House uh, Committee on Homeland Security, the Subcommittee on Oversight, Investigations, and Accountability. That included a lot of different representatives, including one Marjorie Taylor Greene. So now that you got the nerves out, you've been on TV, you've been in front of Congress, do you feel ready to do straight white American Jesus? This is like Absolutely. no problem. Now. Okay, I, I am super excited yeah. to have this conversation and uh, uh, close out the week like this. So thanks. Yeah, from Congress to my, the storage closet where I uh, <laughs> record this podcast. So let me tell folks about you. You are an award-winning author and scholar of extremism and radicalization, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. The founding director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University in Washington, D.C., where you're also a professor in the School of Public Affairs. You've just done so much in terms of advocating, testifying, and speaking in front of Congress, in front of the United Nations, many, many other places. And a recent book, your, well, one of your, your most recent book, which I've read and is wonderful, is Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right from Princeton University Press, and, and that's from October 2020. So wanted to invite you on to talk about extremism and radicalization in the wake of the Allen Mall shooting in Texas uh, just over a week ago. want to start here, though, which and this is going to sound like a very basic question, but I think it's one that might help folks listening. You run a lab that studies polarization and extremism. I've heard you talk about it. You have various methods you use to study this online. We're talking a lot about gun violence because we live in a gun violence hellscape in this country at the moment. When people think of extremism, when people think of radicalization, what should they picture? Because I think everyone sort of has a different idea of like a radical or an extremist. And sometimes it helps to maybe have a more concrete vision. So just wondering if we can start there. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, the field uh, of extremism, if you will, doesn't even agree on a definition of extremism, much less various types of extremism. So, so you know, I will tell you that the definition we use, which is one of the more common definitions, but not the only one, is, is a definition in which extremism is the um, coming to believe, radicalization is coming to believe a system in which us versus them exists, and the other poses an existential threat to yourself, your your family, your future, your well-being, right? And that existential threat typically has to be met with violence. So extremism is a belief system that is an us versus them way of thinking in which the other is, is an existential threat. And then radicalization is the process of coming to see the world in that way. So other people will use the definition of extremism um, that is relies on the mainstream, basically saying something is on the fringes. We don't use that. And increasingly, it becomes more and more difficult because extremism has seeped into the mainstream in so many ways. The Overton window has sort of shifted. And so uh, I think you can't really as easily distinguish between uh, what's mainstream and what's fringe 
as you maybe could at one time. And, uh, and so it's easier to think about it as this us versus them, total good versus evil, binary way of thinking, but especially in which the other is an existential threat. That's the really the, the distinguishing feature. I really appreciate this approach because we work all the time on this show to talk about how, uh, the, it, as you just said, it's really difficult to decipher the fringe from the mainstream, whether we're talking about white Christian nationalism or we're talking about uh, far right politics, whatever it may be. So I just really love that, uh, that definition. And I think it's very helpful. Uh, this leads me to what happened in Texas. The Allen Mall shooter ended the lives of over half a dozen people. And here are some, some things we know about the Allen Mall shooter. Uh, he shared extremist beliefs with rants against Jews, women, and racial minorities. Posted some of this on the Russian social net network platform, OK.ru, including posts referring to online forums, 4chan, uh, referenced people like Nick Fuentes and, uh, and others. Made disturbing comments about what makes a mass shooting, quote unquote, important and praised a person uh, who opened fire at a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, just a month ago, and also posted photos of a flak vest uh, emblazoned with patches, one of them with the initials for right-wing death squad, which is a popular meme among, uh, popular meme among far-right extremist groups. It comes from Pinochet and Chile, and, and just there's a vast history of that, that whole thing. Uh, how does he fit into a pattern of young men who are radicalized online without seemingly having an official affiliation with far-right groups, you, not having to march with the Proud Boys, go to meetings in a secret basement or some bar with no windows. I mean, we're talking about men who are radicalized without seemingly being part of a group and yet going out doing atrocious and disgusting things in the name of a certain group or a certain movement. How does that happen? Yeah, it's. I think it's one of the most important questions to ask in part because uh, we as a country focus so heavily on the groups and we're fascinated with the groups in part because I think we've had this 20-year trajectory post 9-11 of thinking about terrorism as group-based, as being as resting within an ideology that has groups around it that have a hierarchy, a chain of command, a, a leader where people pledge loyalty and there's clear manifesto. But actually in the far-right world, especially the white supremacist world, None of the attackers going all the way back to Oklahoma City in any recent memory, none of these mass shooters have ever had an official affiliation or tied to a group. So even the Oklahoma City bomber tried to, but wasn't rejected. So, so it's, some of them is not for lack of trying, but they're all, they all share a radicalization through some, especially over the past from, from Charleston to Pittsburgh to Poway to El Paso, Buffalo. I mean, just again and again and again, you can name these um, mass shooter attacks all the way up to the recent one in Texas, where they were radicalized either to a very clear belief system and an ideology like the Great Replacement. So you see that kind of, uh, you know, serious conspiracy theory about Jews and about a great replacement of demographic change being orchestrated in order for one group to secure power. It's false and dangerous conspiracy theory. I always try to say that. Sometimes you just say the conspiracy theory, people start to believe it a little bit. So false and dangerous conspiracy theory. Sometimes you see that type of radicalization happen. Um, and that was like the Buffalo is a really clear, clear case of that. But in other cases, um, what you really have is this toxic mix of mass shooter fandom along with deep and exposure to a real toxic mix of deep misogyny, 
uh, racism and uh, sort of anti-Semitism. Those three things tend to be there very consistently. And white supremacism, not just racism, but a real belief in a hierarchy and superiority and inferiority in which others then eventually pose an existential threat. And so, um, but what happens is this happened in Uvalde, it happened in this past case, it happened in Highland Park last summer, where people are embedded in those types of toxic things. They're making vile posts, they're expressing extreme misogyny, extreme white supremacy or racism or anti-Semitism online, but they don't leave a manifesto. And so because of that, there won't be an official motive. And so, you know, we don't know that for sure yet in this case, it could still turn up somewhere, but it doesn't appear to be the case that there is a manifesto, meaning that it's a technicality really in a way, but then if the authorities can't link the motive for this particular shooting, I'm doing this shooting because I believe X, Y, and Z, then they don't really have a way to label it as a terrorist act. And so you end up, that's why we now have this category of like targeted violence, basically, which is the way DHS refers to, you know, mass shooting attacks that are, you know, have some sort of ideological roots, but you can't quite pin it down because there's not a manifesto. You can't pin down a motive. And that's what we're facing here. There's so much there that that really touches on uh, <laughs> what seems to be something across the, the cross, the cross section of American society, which is we no longer have the institutions where we can track the paper trails, the membership cards, whether that is in a, a far-right neo-Nazi group, whether that's in the Proud Boys, or even if that's in a Christian denomination, more and more, we have this radicalization online. We have the coming to believe in extreme things via an online cosmos. But as you say, the categorization, the attribution of motives is, is difficult. And in many ways, our methods are outdated when it comes to doing so. The radicalization process, though, is often not what we think. It's easy to, to imagine neo-Nazi groomers who are just on street corners or talking to kids after high school saying, hey, come over here and you know join our group. Uh, we have motorcycles and we, we do seemingly cool, hyper-masculine things. Your work is so important in the sense that it shows us how individuals are brought into this cosmos, usually through humor and satire, which may sort of surprise people. But I would can you just explain that? Because I think it's so illuminating and so important to understand. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the way I describe it is if you used to have, and to be clear, there still are groups, right? We've seen mass, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, right? The neo-Nazi groups that got taken down in Charlottesville. I mean, there are groups and a lot of our strategies for disrupting plots still do still rely on groups and being able to either prove a conspiracy to commit violence or to approve, to disrupt and interrupt those plots through infiltration. And so that does still happen. We see that with the militia groups, et cetera. But the vast majority of violence, in part because what slips through, is often uh, really hard to, to, to predict or to notice that an individual is becoming radicalized in the same way as, as maybe an FBI infiltrator joins a group and is able to, to, to interrupt that plot that way. So the groups just still exist. But if you used to have a, an ecosystem where in order to join an extremist group, you had to seek out the 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 hate, basically. You, you were brought along by an individual. One person recruited you and took you to some backwoods, you know, and you signed a pledge and had some initiation rights and joined up, right? And then became ideologically radicalized. Now, I think it's much more likely, I just assume the hate is coming to you wherever you are online. Um, and it will find you in an online game space. It'll find you in a in a uh, comment thread, it'll find you in, in basically in any space, right? Because that's the way online spaces work. And most of us, thankfully, 
see it, reject it, walk away from it. Sometimes step away from those spaces because they're so toxic, right? Or tragically, we hear a lot of like kids of color say they will, you know, use a different avatar or a different name or not put on the voice chat if they have an accent while they're gaming because they don't want to, they can face that hate if they, if they hide their identity. And so, so there are strategies that people use to avoid it or to reject it or to walk away from it. But, but it means that a lot of people are encountering it in ordinary spaces. And then the way I think that is like just these, these access points, it opens up pathways because there'll be a URL or a click or some other way to go further down a rabbit hole. And so you run a search like that. Charleston church shooter searched for something about, about black on white crime was taken to misinformation, disinformation, propaganda on the website as the first hit. And that opened up a rabbit hole for him to radicalize him further uh, into propaganda and conspiracy theory. So it's just, there's so many ways, uh, and the humor and the satire is part of it. Right. And so it's, a lot of it is jokes that are under the cloak of plausible deniability, but also are designed to provoke and to use satire and humor and irony as a way of weaponizing youth culture. So that you end up with, um, you know, the far right, especially white supremacist youth, declaring themselves kind of as the counterculture against a boring, triggered mainstream who just can't take the joke, you know, and they become the edgy ones. They become the ones who are pushing the envelope. And that's that can be fun for kids, right, to feel like they want to provoke mainstream. They're angry. They want to provoke their parents. They want to toe the line. They're getting around bans. Um, that, you know, Facebook shuts down a group called Boogaloo, which is a code for became a code for civil war. And all of a sudden they start calling themselves blue igloo or big igloo or big luau, right? And then they start wearing Hawaiian shirts uh, because there's a Hawaiian shirts at a luau, right? And so then all of a sudden you have these armed guys with, you know, machine guns and, and Hawaiian shirts showing up at state capitol protests. And everyone's like, what the heck, right, is that? But that's what it is. It's because of this kind of game playing um, coding. So there's many different layers to it, but I think understanding it as part of this amorphous youth culture and that part of that use of humor and satire is um is positioning themselves as edgy counterculture is is a way to understand what's been happening it's really scary the way you put it i think is is so so insightful and so helpful uh it used to be that you had to seek out hate and now you just assume hate is coming for you and i think of talking to a family member who has uh, a child who's just about to become a teenager. And he was telling me like, I don't have access to the world my kid lives in the older they get. Like the older they get, they inhabit spaces that I'm not in and I can't really get in even if I try. And as soon as I do get in, everyone runs because like some of the parents came home and there, they're right? having a party. And so he was expressing this fear of like, how do I do this? I want to come back to like method and ways that we can combat this. But in some of your work, you, you make a point that I think is really worth talking about here, that misogyny, racism, and reproductive rights uh, are all linked in terms of the culture you're talking about. Uh, we often think of the end of Roe as a victory for the religious right. I've certainly talked about that for hours and hours and hours on this show. But you point out it was also a victory for white supremacist men. And I'm wondering if you could just help us understand that. What is what is limiting reproductive rights and bodily autonomy for women have to do with being uh, a, a white supremacist, uh, a, a misogynist in, in the vein of Andrew Tate or someone yeah. else? How does that work? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's two aspects to it. And uh, so on the one hand, white supremacists are obsessed with the idea of demographic change. And they're obsessed with this idea that um, that there's, especially through the Great Replacement, the false and dangerous Great Replacement conspiracy theory, they are obsessed with the idea that there's an intentional effort to eradicate, they call it white genocide, basically, to eradicate the white civilization and, and culture and that they're dying and they're existentially a threat. And so, of course, reproduction and the reproduction of white babies becomes essential to this um, story. They want they want to restrict the ability of white women in particular to uh, abort white babies because that abortion is part of, they think, this white genocide plot. And so, so it's in their interests to have uh, white women in particular not have abortion rights. So some white supremacists actually advocate for differential you know, abortion rights for racial groups for this exact racist reason that what they really want is to make sure those white white women are forced to have babies, um, but women of other ethnic groups could be allowed to have abortions. And so, not every that's just some of the of the of the you know the pledge. And then there's even worse. I mean, it's hard to say even worse. There's <laughs> equally or worse disgusting things like uh, neo-Nazi groups that advocate for rape of white mass rape of white women. Of and you see this kind of in order to force reproduction, basically to to force white women to reproduce babies to counteract this white genocide plot that they believe is underway. So that's part of it. And then, of course, the misogynistic part of it is baked in as well. It's it's about total control of women's bodies for the benefit of the white race. Um, and women play into this as well. I mean, there are women influencers out there online who, one who issued a white baby challenge to have as many white babies as she, I mean, they they also are contributing to this by by advocating for having as many white babies as you can and, and trying to sort of do your part to to reproduce the white race. All of this has so many overlaps with uh, so much of the, the conservative white Christian culture that I study and talk about uh, so often on this show. And, and it really shows why there's just natural allyships across these cultures. And it's sometimes hard to tell them apart because of everything you just said. When we think about the radicalization and the adherence to extremism you're discussing, is this a uniquely American phenomenon? We, we get told all the time, mental health is the problem with, uh, with our country. That's why there's gun violence. It's not the guns, it's mental health. So is this uniquely American? Is this happening across the globe? What does it look like from your perspective? It is uh, happening across the globe. And I would say, you know, the way that I started talking about American issues related to the far right at all is because I had first been studying it for 20 years in Germany, where uh, Germany had had a surge of post-unification uh, anti-Semitism and right-wing extremist violence and terrorism. And so schools, I was studying working class schools, construction trade schools and others as my part of my dissertation, looking at kind of civic identity at the time. This is some 23, 24 years ago. And, uh, and there was this massive surge at the time. And so teachers just started spending all their time trying to figure out what they could do and getting training. And so I was an ethnographer just for 18 months embedded in that effort and then ended up doing two books uh, over a decade about those schools and about what these school-based responses to resurgent hate um, were doing and what broader federal initiatives were trying to do as well. And then uh, the second of those books also tracked this transformation in coding and gameplay and the scenes and the modernization of the far right scene, which happened in Germany before it happened here. And it was called The Extreme Gone Mainstream. And then two months later, Charlottesville happened. And I suddenly went from being an area studies scholar who had never 
uh, talk to really anybody, a journalist or anyone in the public domain. I was just a regular old academic. And suddenly I was like testifying before Congress. So that was a real, very strange moment for me. But because of those 20 years that I spent um, really studying that, I it was very quickly, once I was in American spaces, especially in the policy world, it became very clear that we were approaching this in some very wrong ways and that they weren't, that most people didn't understand at all what was happening in youth spaces online and were, and really had a security-based uh, counter-terrorism framework that had been created. People forget, like, the Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11. So that's our entire counter-terrorism, counter-extremism infrastructure was built up around a post 9-11 moment and everything that's been created around that has really been oriented to that. So it's it's taken the U.S. years to just get their heads wrapped around the fact that not only are we not just pivoting to a different type of threat, it's a totally different type of radicalization um, and a much broader ideology than just one type of ideology. It's it's a cluster of ideologies that all feed off each other, which is really what we saw in Allen, Texas. So if we take the cluster of ideologies you just talked about and and couple that with what you've said in terms of uh, people being radicalized, not necessarily needing to be part of a group on the ground, that they don't need to go uh, participate and carry the card and, and all that, it seems as if we need to talk about different strategies to combat this. And so yeah. I, I know you talked about this with Congress yesterday before the committee. There's civic levels and there's interpersonal levels. In terms of policy, in terms of laws, in terms of the ways a, a department like DHS approaches these things, what might be effective here? Well, the first thing that, that we advocate for in the lab is shifting the way we think about prevention to a public health approach rather than a security one. And so we've already done that for gun violence in this country. And we're arguing the same thing should be true for, for all kinds of mass shootings and, and ideologically motivated violence, um, including extremist violence. And that means when you think about public, when we started adopting a public health approach to physical health, which meant you don't just wait until diabetes and cardiac disease emerges, you also try to equip communities with better tools on how to make healthier choices themselves, behavioral and uh, choices. But you also look at the underlying conditions in communities, like uh, are there food deserts or are there, you know, what, what is preventing people from making healthier choices? And so the same thing is here. You know, you don't just wait until something dangerous is about to happen and then try to intervene by creating bystander intervention programs or creating crisis mitigation programs. I think instead we we are advocate you have to invest much earlier in things like digital and media literacy, but also civic education to sort of reduce the fertile ground in which this stuff thrives. And what I was saying yesterday in the hearing is like, you know, either you accept a world in which we're going to have censorship and banning and surveillance and monitoring of our lives, which I don't think anybody across the whole, nobody on the left wants it, nobody on the right wants it, right? Nobody wants a world in which we have a total censorship or, or monitoring or surveillance regime. But if you're not going to do that, given the amount of garbage that's circulating, you have to invest in ways to get people to recognize and reject it. And so what we find is that people really don't like to find out they're being manipulated. And if you can just actually point out the tactics of online manipulation as part of kind of civic and uh, digital media literacy, people get, people aren't stupid. Like they, they really figure out pretty quickly, oh, scapegoating's a tactic. So if I see somebody using that, I should think twice, right? If I see somebody fear mongering, like you can recognize tactics, you can recognize things like rhetorical strategies, like us, uh, like the, the brave truth teller, like there's always a, a great 
at great risk to myself, I'm going to tell you the truth about this thing and then ply people with disinformation. That is a rhetorical strategy that is used across all kinds of propaganda. And so that's one of the ways. Um, but the main thing is it's sort of like a different imagination is, is needed, a different way of thinking that is not just about banning or arresting our way out of it, but is thinking about how can you build more resilience within communities. So we need uh, civic structure, civic engagement, civic education, and public health, rather than just more security. How did uh, the folks on the committee feel about that? Well, it was really interesting. I was a minority witness, right? So this is a, a you know Republican-led committee. And um, so the, there's three majority witnesses who are all um, you know, on the Republican there as uh, representing that perspective. And, and, but there was a lot of agreement across us. And I thought that was really interesting. Like none of us want censorship. Uh, we all respect freedom of speech, right? We all agree that there's rampant disinformation circulating, right? And so we may not agree on what disinformation, how to define it or what that disinformation is, right? And not everyone in the room agreed, right? There's some people who are purveyors of that disinformation as well. So, but I think there was some broad consensus, but then the hearing was really just heavily focused on uh, censorship, but then I was there really to make the argument that if you don't want censorship, which we don't want either, you have to invest in something else and here's some things that work. So we did it as an opportunity because in the lab, we've been running projects for three years now, all of which have produced statistically significant evidence that is also cross-partisan divides. Republicans and Democrats both learn, we do a lot of work with parents with caregivers, grandparents, coaches, mental health counselors, faith leaders. We work with the evangelical community in particular who asked us for help. We have a lot of different uh, work that we do with communities who ask us for help to counter or prevent people in their own lives from going down these rabbit holes. And I think that's the other thing I really tried to point out yesterday is, you know, we feel a constant stream of calls for help, right? From religious communities, from uh, government offices, from small businesses who are like, what's going on with our employees, from teachers, from parents, grandparents, a grandfather emailed me, he's a veteran, you know, this, his grandson had joined a militia, wants to know what to do. And once that's already going on, there's very little you can do, actually. De-radicalization is uh, very tricky. There's very thin evidence about it. And it's, there's no evidence that it can be done at scale. But prevention that's actually, there's great evidence. It's really not that hard. It takes seven to 12 minutes of reading one of our intervention guides, 30 seconds in one of our videos pointing out tactics to get statistically significant differences in how people respond to manipulation and recognize warning signs. So, you know, I, we don't even think it's that hard to do. It's just, it just, when you're looking at like after January 6th, $2 billion going into just securing the capital better right? Which I'm not saying doesn't need to happen. I'm sure there are new security needs, and, but, and, and no new increases in prevention funding across the country. That's really sad. And it sort of tells you like how much of our taxpayer dollars are going to continue to go into locking down our cities every time there's an inauguration, um, securing our capitals every time there's an election. And I just don't think people want to live like that. I don't, I don't want to live like that. I will tell you, and I will tell you that I'm thinking about <clears throat> This is a different issue, but it's related to me. We're going to have a debt ceiling fight here on Capitol Hill in a, in a minute, and we need to cut spending. We need to do this. But you know, none of the people calling for cutting spending are cutting for any spending on military security. And it, it, there's just a kind of analogy there of our, our go-to in this country is always you know more security, more police, more guns, more missiles, more tanks. And 
we, we rarely think about any of the strategies you just talked about. You need to go. You have important things to do. So I'm not going to keep you any longer, but I will tell you, friends, that there, Dr. Miller Idris has written a great piece about how this works in interpersonal relationships. And I'll put that in the show notes. If you have someone in your life that you want to talk to individually, she, she has some great advice there as well. So I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. Before you go, where can people link up with you uh, going yeah. forward? It's great. We're about to finally, uh, uh, you know, uh, launch a new website, which so stay tuned for a couple of weeks away from that, which is itself an intervention uh, website where people can enter. There'll be places to click in if you're a parent or a faith leader or a uh, local government official. And then you can go through and find the tools that we've created and tested, which are all free and accessible and downloadable to the public. I mean, we don't chart, we, we raise the money to do stuff and then we make it and test it. Um, and create an empirical base for others. So you can read all of our impact studies. So that's all at www.perilresearch.com, P-E-R-I-L research.com. Um, you can also uh, go to my personal website for all of my essays and some clips from from uh, media stuff. And that's cynthiamilleridris.com. Um, and so those are two places to start. Uh, just be patient with the uh, construction of the Peril website. It should be another week or two away. I just saw the screenshots of it. It's coming together. So. Well, it's a, what a wonderful resource. And I, I definitely will just direct people there. So thank you for sharing that. Great. As always, friends, thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate your support. Can always use your help. This is an indie show. So Venmo, PayPal, Patreon, it's all in our link tree. Other than that, uh, we uh, will be back next or later this week with It's in the Code and the Weekly Roundup. But for now, we'll say thanks for listening. Have a great day. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.